Good stuff. All right, let's look at our scripture that can be found in the bulletin. This is Romans 3, 1 through 8. Romans 3, 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. The word of the Lord. Of all the questions that mankind has, I think one of the most prevalent that is never Uh, said out loud, but wondered by all, is this. What is God like? To some people, God is a remote figure out there, unknowable, distant, absent. He set the world in motion, perhaps, but there's no way to really know him. To others, he's an angry, vengeful creator who is bent on the destruction of those in which he created. To others, he's a sort of benevolent father time, if you will. He's kind of like your uncle who shows up every now and then and distributes some gifts in and out, but really, really not involved with our life. I don't know if you remember the song that was written by Alanis Morissette a couple of decades ago. What What if God was one of us? Just a stranger on a bust, just a slob like one of us trying to make his way home. And we have to ask the question, what if God was like one of us? Not in terms of Jesus Christ coming to earth and becoming a man, but what if God's character was like ours? I would say if that was true, then the universe would be in big trouble. See, one of the reasons we don't trust God is because we think that he's just like We are like humanity. But God is not like one of us because God is faithful to himself. In fact, the most important thing to God is being true to himself. And God is always faithful to us, his people, because he is always faithful to himself. And so we can trust him with our lives. We're going to see from looking at this passage, there are three things that we can trust him with. Number one, we can trust him with our sin. We can trust him with the issues and the problems and the fallenness in our lives. Number two, we can trust him with our salvation. That God has a plan and it leads to good. And finally, number three, we can trust him with our obedience that we can walk in obedience and trust in God's word because God has the best in mind for us. 
See, God is always faithful to us because he's always faithful to himself. Well, let's begin. Number one, we must trust God with our sin. Paul is working through the gospel. Romans has been called the the most clear exposition of the gospel, what it is. And he's been uh, giving us the bad news up front. To really understand the gospel, you must understand the problem, the issue. I've said it before that until you can understand that the cross was caused by us, you cannot appreciate and embrace the fact that the cross was done for us. And he's been speaking first uh, to the Gentiles. Remember, he's speaking to a church much like ours in Rome, which is composed of Gentiles and Jews. And he's been speaking about the fact that even Gentiles who do not have the law of God, the Old Testament, know the law and yet refuse to do it. And in the last week or two, last couple of weeks, he's turned to the Jewish people. In fact, last week, what I preached on the uh, section before was that Paul was saying that knowing the law, having the Old Testament, and knowing it is not enough. Because it's not those who know the law, but do the law that will be justified before God, and no one does the law. In this section, Paul is answering some arguments, some hypothetical arguments that are being raised. And one of them is in verse 1. Then what advantage, someone says, has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, what is, so what if they got the law? Is there any advantage whatsoever in being Jew? And Paul goes on in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In fact, when we get to Romans 9, we'll see uh, that uh, he says much in every way that the Jews, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of law, the worship, and the promises. But here, He says that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with God's word. Psalm 147 puts it this way. What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as the body of laws as I am setting before you today? See, God took the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage. And he made them his own. He said, I will be your people and you will be my God. He made a covenant with them. And that covenant, that agreement was full of promises and obligations. This is who I will be to you. And this is who you must be to me. But it was also full of blessings and curses. That if you are faithful to who I am calling you to be and what I'm calling you to do, you will be blessed But if you are not faithful to your obligations, you will be cursed. So Paul is saying, you have this advantage, Jewish people, that you were entrusted with the oracles of God. But it moves on to verse 3. Well, what if some were unfaithful? What if the Jewish people were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness to the covenant nullify the faithfulness of God? It's important that we understand what faithfulness they're asking. See, there was a Jewish tendency to interpret God's covenant faithfulness solely in terms of his salvation promises. Indeed, even for Christians today, there's a strain of the church. It's called dispensationalism, a mindset in the church that there are two people who are saved, the Christians through Christ and Jews uh, separate from Christ, but through the promises of God. 
And I'm here to tell you that that is bad theology. There's only one way that mankind can be saved, and that is through Christ. And when we get to Romans 9, we will discover that God does have a plan for the Jewish people. But in Romans 2, 28, last week, remember that Paul said, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. See, the faithfulness that really is being talked about is God's faithfulness to his own person and his own promises, which include the blessings and the curses that God has in the covenant. God is therefore righteous when he punishes his people for their sin, as well as when he rewards them for their obedience. See, that's why in verse 4, Paul says, By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. See, God says that if man is a liar, in other words, man cannot be true to himself. That man sometimes knows what is true and what he should do, but doesn't do it. In other words, mankind is unreliable, that we often go back on our promises. But God is always true to himself, even when everyone else is not. See, there's this, uh, he, uh, this quote here, Psalm 51.4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That's actually what David said when he was confronted with his sin after having committed adultery with Bathsheba. And if you'll remember, then he decided uh, uh, to kill Bathsheba's husband, that he should die that, uh, so that he could have Bathsheba. Now, this was the man after God's own heart, and yet he made this decision. And then he sort of rationalized it. He, he stuffed it down. He forgot about it. And God sent the prophet Nathan. And if you remember, he told, Nathan told this little parable that there was a man who had this, this whole flock of sheep. And there was this other man that just had one little lamb, but that man cared for that little lamb and loved it. But the one with the flock of sheep took the little lamb and because he wanted a meal, and he, and he killed it instead of his own sheep. And David burned with anger. And Nathan said, don't you realize that that is you? That you could have had anything you wanted, but instead you rationalized your decision, and you went against my word, and you killed Uriah the Hittite so that you could have Bathsheba. And David responds in Psalm 51.4, against you only you have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David is saying, your judgment against me, whatever it is that you judge against me, is just and blameless, because you're not like me. Your judgment is motivated only in truth and in your character, not preferences or lies or rationalizations. We adopted our daughter, Maria, it's probably been 15 years ago, uh, from the country of Nicaragua. And I don't know if you've ever gotten to go to a third world country. If you do, uh, it's quite an eye-opener. Nicaragua is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. 
And one of the things you'll notice when you go to Nicaragua is that every house, if it's not a shack, is walled and their gates and it's barred. It looks, you know, each of them, they look like this almost a penitentiary. And the question is why, why do American houses not look like that? And why do these houses in Nicaragua? And the answer is because if you call the police in the United States of America, they're gonna come. If you call the police in Nicaragua, there's no guarantee that they're gonna come. And indeed there's corruption is so widespread in Nicaragua that police officers, if, if you are driving and you look like an American, not all police officers, I'm not painting everyone with that brush, but this is a widespread problem. They see an American driving, they will stop them and they will come up with some reason to say, hey, I'm gonna take your license and I'm, you know, I'm hauling you off to jail, unless of course you pay the fee now. Uh, I managed to escape this because I looked at least enough like a Nicaraguan uh, that they wouldn't stop me. But the issue is that corruption is so widespread, nobody really believes in the government or trusts authority there because judgment is so one-sided. It's the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. But you see, that's not the way it is with God. That the foundation of the universe stands on this, that God is true to himself and his character. God's faithfulness to us is ultimately bound up in the fact that he is faithful to his own person and his promises. And it is impossible for God to not be true to what he is and what he promises. This includes condemnation and it includes grace. You know, you may have grown up in an arbitrary household where promises were issued by your parents, but promises were rarely kept. Even the best of parents, right, don't always keep their word because we're fallible. But maybe you grew up in a house where you couldn't trust that whatever was being said to you was going to happen. Or you loved someone and you entered into a covenant relationship and they promised these things to you, but they didn't come through with them. And somewhere along the way, we learn that we can't really trust anyone. And often we take that to God. You know, what you and I need to understand is that God is not like that. God is not a stranger on a bus, a slob like one of us. The one thing you can count on in this world is God's faithfulness to you if you are his uh, child because God is always faithful to his word and himself. So if you are a Christian, trust in his grace. Trust in his words that I have rescued you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the fire, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. When life gets hard and when you are confused and you don't know which way is up, you can always look to God because God is the one thing that we can stand on, his grace. 
There is one place we can always turn, and that is to our Father's arms and the loving care of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God is always faithful to his people because he is always faithful to himself. So we must trust God with our sin. But my second point, that we can trust God with our salvation. Paul brings up these arguments that people are making regarding their sin. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. In other words, there's this Jewish argument, which is essentially, yes, of course, we sin, but, but God is faithful to his covenant. And therefore, us being unfaithful actually gives him opportunity to show his faithfulness. And therefore, it's almost like we're doing God a favor. It's very, very twisted uh, argument. But again, they're focusing only on the positive aspects of the covenant. They're altering God's words to suit their mindset. They're distorting the righteousness of God because God's righteousness is found in faithfulness to his character and thus all of his words. God is righteous when he punishes his people for their sin as well as when he rewards them for their obedience. Now, this argument is made two different ways here. In ver uh, the same in verse 5 is made the same in verse 7 and 8, just different types of things, right? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? In other words, if through my lie, my unfaithfulness to God, God really can't condemn me because I'm making God look good, right? I'm showing, uh, you know, that he's, he's righteous. Um, but again, I've already answered this argument. How about verse 8 where it's really taken to its extreme? Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? See, that's what some people were saying about Christianity. This grace thing, this grace thing is terrible, really, because what you're doing is you're giving people a license to do evil. Um, so God's grace can be shown. Now, these arguments... Uh, were back then, but our American culture has its own versions of these arguments to justify ourselves before God. One is what I call God bless America. That God chose this great nation, that this nation is sort of a kind of second Israel. That many of the founding fathers were religious and the, the country was founded on many Christian principles. And there was a Christian culture that existed in this, uh, in this country. The church was influential in the culture. Now, look around our culture and you don't see that anymore. But who cares? It sounds good. Essentially, that I am a child of this nation. And therefore, like the Jews were saying, I am under God's corporate blessing. But there's nothing in Scripture that supports this argument. It's a lie. Or how about this one? This is what many people in our culture believe, that God does not really care about how I live because he is good, and therefore he would never judge me for how I live. He must be good to me, but he, because he is good. 
Here's the third one. There are many ways to God and many ways to live. And as long as I am sincere in my beliefs, God must bless me because I am being sincere. And God is sincere. But to claim that God would hold, to claim that God would hold me to any standard that I must choose Christ alone as my source of salvation is counter to God. But you see, all of those arguments are blatantly disregarding the character of God. God is true to himself alone. God must exercise justice on evil because he is just. He cares very deeply about how every single person lives because how we live affects everyone around us and ultimately reflects on how we treat God. God is good, and his goodness is bound up in his righteousness, his steadfast commitment to do good and to judge evil. See, when we make arguments like this, when the world makes arguments like this, what we're doing essentially is making ourselves the center of the universe. That the way I see the world, my even twisted logic, must be the way that God sees the universe as well, because I am the measure. Paul says in the end, their condemnation is just. They blatantly disregard the reality that they have broken the law of God and stand under judgment, and they need a savior. It's an interesting thing being a pastor, my job description. Um, there are only two times really that people who aren't Christians who don't know me really want someone like me to be around. And one of them is not a cocktail party until they discover that I'm actually very fun at a cocktail party. But the two times that people who are not believers really want someone like me is when they're getting married or when somebody's getting buried. Getting married it's very interesting. I have friends who call me. They don't go to church. They don't have any interest in God whatsoever. But when it's time to get married, they want me to perform the service because they want God to sort of ratify and, and, and say, this is, this, is, this is good. And marriage is a creation ordinance. It was created for all, all peoples. But the other one is, is for bearing when somebody dies because death is the great reality check on life, isn't it? And what they're looking for is for me to reassure them that their deceased is in a better place. That what they have been saying, the arguments they have been marshalling, are true. That he is in a better place. That there is no more suffering that the arguments they have about being sincere or that God is good and therefore he must be good to me even if my life really wasn't that good and even if I didn't, and they're looking for that reassurance. But you see, I must be faithful to the scriptures. And the scriptures are very clear, right? Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus said this in John 3.35, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, 
for God's wrath remains on him. See, we must acknowledge all people that there will be a judgment. But Christ has come to create a way to God. That when Christ came to the earth the first time, he did not come to judge, but to save. But he will be coming again at the sound of the trumpet, and no one knows the day or the hour. And he comes again to judge, and all will stand before him. And these false arguments, if they're put before God, will be overruled by the true judge. There is one basis by which we are accepted by God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. And here's the reason why. Because Jesus stood before the Father in our place. He was sincere in what he was doing. He was a Jew entrusted with the oracles of God. He even did good and loved the Father. And yet he became sin so that he might carry the sins of his people, that we might be freed through his blood. If there's anyone who ever could be graded on a curve, it's him. And yet he received judgment. And he is now the king, and all must stand before him. Isaiah 53, 9 tells us that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The, re, the reason that Jesus was condemned for all of the, through all of these arguments was that he might extend grace to all who honor and trust him. So don't put your hope in a false view of the character of God. God is just and God is gracious and he has made a way and that way is his son. He who has the son has life. But if you are a Christian, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Christian has nothing to fear, nothing to prove, and nothing to hide. Because God is always faithful to his people because he is first always faithful to himself. We can trust God with our sin. We can trust God with our salvation. And we must also trust God in our daily obedience. The Jews here in this passage were presuming on the grace of God and twisting the Old Testament in a tool to pat them on the back and justify them. But many in this room hearing me are believers. We believe in Jesus Christ. We don't hope in our righteousness or our adherence to obedience of the law to justify us. Even more so, we are a reformed church. We understand that it is by the grace of God that he chose us and set his hand on us, not because of my holiness, but because of his grace. But you see, we too must be careful 
to not presume that God's grace to us exempts us from any concern about our sin as his people. God is holy and has called us to be holy as he is holy. And he has given us his Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ that dwells in us, that he might empower us to live holy lives as befits the children of God's family. It's easy sometimes to forget that God's ultimate concern is for his own glory, even above just our blessing. That it's not all about us. That God's righteousness is also displayed when he punishes, as well as when he saves. As Christians, we want to stand on the promises of salvation through Christ, and that is entirely appropriate. But we must not forget that God also promises to rebuke and chastise his children in his church for their sin, as well as to bless them for their obedience. So the question I have for you and me today is do I take God's holiness, his call to holiness, seriously in my life? 1 John 5.3 says, This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. So what is the passion for your life? Yes, Lord, I love you, and I'm thankful that I'm saved. But obeying your commands on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis really isn't on my radar. My friends, that is what is called cheap grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. If you remember Christ when he came to the temple and he saw what was going on in it, he was angry. And so what did he do? He overturned and he drove out the money changers. And his disciples remembered. Remember what Jesus said? How dare you turn my father's house into a a store? And his disciples remembered, zeal for my house will consume me. See, we the church... And we individually are his house. And if you are a Christian, he has taken up residence in your life. And he is just as zealous for his house, your heart and life, as he was for the temple that day. The scriptures say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Such love that Christ has manifested, such giving of oneself, must merit an equal response. To give anything less to our Lord than all of ourselves when he has given all of himself to us insults grace. And so what is it that I can give the Lord? I can give my heart. See, Jesus did not come into your life simply to reform you. He came into your life to transform you. He is the Holy One that brings holiness into your life as you submit to Him. 
See, all too often, it's, uh, I, I've tried to be holy, but I just, I can't overcome the sin. I can't change the world. It pulls me back in and so on and so on. It is the Lord that does the house cleaning. It is the Lord that has come into our hearts and in our lives. And what Jesus Christ wants is you. He wants you to give him governing authority over your mind, your emotions, your will, and your body. As he works in you both to will and to act for his good purposes. Does this mean I need to stop thinking, stop willing, stop feeling? No. It simply means that I've come under new management. And I want Christ's remodeling job to continue on in my life. And what you will discover is that as you give your mind, your will, and body to his governance, you will become the person that you were meant to be. Trust God with your sin. Trust him with salvation. And trust him with your life as you obey him by faith. He is the one who is inside of us. And God is always faithful to us because he is first and foremost faithful to himself. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have come into our hearts and lives and taken up residence. That you have made us acceptable in your sight. A place, a habitation suitable for your dwelling. And you are zealous for your house, our hearts. Lord, may we give you all of our lives. Do a work in them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.